Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 388 of Her, the podcast where, well, you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her women's health care, especially as it relates to fertility, menopause, we're going to cover it all, and this is going to be an excellent episode, one you're really wanting to sit back and take a lot of notes. Before we begin, just know that it's made possible by our wonderful friends at Solaray Vitamins, and that's S-O-L-A-R-A-Y, and they put out a very, very excellent liposomal uh, multivite for women, and the liposomal is a special preparation that allows um, enhanced absorption over time so that a woman can really uh, benefit from all of the ingredients. Just make sure to take your vitamins, crying out loud. All right. So if you want to learn more, just run on over to uh, solaray.com. Now, this is your first reminder to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because I'm all about your feedback. All right, now it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind, her body, her life. It's all about her. Oh boy, are we living in wild and crazy times when it comes to women's health care. My head is spinning. I'm getting you know, uh, whiplash from the changes and and what's been happening uh, to just about every aspect of women's health care, from uh, insurance uh, reimbursements to, well, you know, prescriptions and medicalization of, of our various journeys uh, throughout um, a woman's um, lifespan. And as I was Reviewing all of this, I came across uh, what I consider to be a seminal textbook. It's called The Estrogen Elixir, A History of Hormonal Replacement Therapy in America. I'm always about history. If you don't know history, guess what? You know, you're going to be repeating a whole lot of mistakes. So know your history. This was written by Dr. Elizabeth Siegel. Watkins. Uh, And I want you to know a little bit about her because we are so honored she is on this podcast with us because Dr. Watkins is our guest. So Dr. Watkins became provost and executive vice chancellor at UC Riverside on May 1, 2021. She came to UC Riverside from UC San Francisco, where she served as the dean of the graduate division, vice chancellor of student affairs, and professor of history of health sciences. Dr. Watkins earned both her baccalaureate in biology and PhD in the history of science at Harvard University. I'm going to stop here for a moment because that's what got me. This was the kind of historian I wanted to read. This was someone who focuses on the interrelationship between medicine, science, 
commerce and culture in the United States, and specifically in the 20th and 21st centuries. And so she's written uh, considerably on these topics, um, and she is author also of On the Pill, A Social History of Oral Contraceptives, and also um, Medicating Modern America, History of Prescription Drugs, Prescribed is another, Writing, Filling, Using, and Abusing the Prescription in Modern America, and then Therapeutic Revolutions, Pharmaceuticals, and Social Change in the 20th Century. Good heavens, Dr. Watkins, please welcome to the Herb Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, here you are, you wrote this book 15 years ago, and you said, geez, uh, I almost forgot I wrote it. Um, <laughs> and then I come circling around, and, I, and I, I have to admit, because of all the changes that are taking place today uh, in women's health care, I can't imagine a more timely book, because, you know, history didn't change. You wrote about the history um, of hormonal replacement therapy in America, but you're also very interested in oral contraception, which is, of course, uh, given recent events, uh, extremely relevant. I'm just curious, taking a, a quick step back, why did you first write The Estrogen Elixir? What was compelling to you? I had just finished writing my first book, which was On the Pill, which was A History of Oral Contraceptives. And when I was doing the research for that book, I kept noticing on the periphery of my vision when I was in the archives and looking at sources, talk about estrogen for older women, estrogen use in menopause, for postmenopause. But I was laser focused on getting this first project done. So I sort of put it on the back burner and said, I should really come back to this. And, and because clearly there's a longer story of estrogen throughout the life course for women. But I had just been focusing on its use in, for, um, for contraceptive purposes for women during their reproductive years. So when I finished that book, I sort of took this project off the back burner. And, you know, at first I thought it would just be an article that I would talk about some of the uh, ways that estrogen had been used to treat menopause uh, in women. And I quickly learned that it was a much longer and more complicated history. I started writing this in the late 1990s. And when I was initially conceiving of this book project, I called it, I was thinking of it as the rise and fall and rise again of estrogen. Because when I was writing the book, Premarin was the most popular prescription drug in the country. And all of the major medical associations were recommending that all postmenopausal women take estrogen basically for the rest of their lives as a preventive for long-term disease, specifically to protect against osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease. And then in the midst of researching writing this book, the results of the Women's Health Initiative study came out. In 2002, this federally funded study was stopped prematurely because um, the data showed that women were ha on the drug were having negative effects, that in fact, they were having more cardiovascular events. They were, more of them were getting breast cancer than women who were, who were on, the, um, on the placebo. So the, the book quickly became the rise and fall and rise and fall again of, est of estrogen. And so I traced the history of how 
physicians have used this hormone um, to prescribe it to women, starting from its discovery in the 1930s right up until the 2000s. You know, I, 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 I'm sort of laughing a little bit um, because as a fellow author, I can only imagine here you are tootling along and you've got all your great research and you're ready to rock and roll and then plum, you know, you get this study that basically, uh, you know, is a major brick wall um, and makes you have to sit back and, and pivot and, and figure out how all of this works. Um and so it's interesting, as a provider myself, I remember um, in medical school, uh, to your point, uh, Premarin, it was just basically a, an SOP you followed, just standard operating procedure. There wasn't much thought to it. But something really bothered me, um, and that was uh, taking um, a piece of a woman's life, which is quite natural, um, menstruation, uh, when it commences, is a very natural process. Um, and then we talk about oral contraceptives and all the rest of it. But it's a very natural thing. When it comes to menopause, it's basically a 20-year journey starting with the age of 40 because perimenopause can begin as early as 40 and then extending postmenopausally, And then what bothered me was the fact that when I actually looked up the insurance reimbursement coding for um, uh, perimenopause, menopause, it was listed under genitourinary diseases. Now we have a problem. <laughs> it's just like, wait a minute. Since when did this become a disease? So let's talk about the medicalization of menopause. So I think that it's always been thought of as a disease by physicians who are trained to look for disease, uh, and particularly to as a way of explaining um, other um, behavioral and, and social changes in women. Um, since the 19th century, physicians have looked to women's reproductive organs to explain why they behave the way they do, instead of, say, looking at the social and cultural and economic conditions in which women have had to live. So um, menopause has always been medicalized, um, and it's just a question of to what extent. It's, it's, a, it's a transition, and you said it nicely. It's just a stage in, in our very long lives. And uh, it became particularly medicalized in the 1960s when a, a, a few physicians talked about not just using estrogen to treat hot flashes, and it's still a good treatment. I think that's really important to say, and you, you know this as a physician, that for the a small percentage of women who have really adverse effects um, of hot flashes and night sweats and so forth, it's a good short-term treatment to get them, to help them pass through those episodes. But that's just it, short term. What changed in the 1960s was the conceptualization of menopause as a deficiency disease. It was likened to um, diabetes. If diabetes is a a hormone deficiency disease because the body doesn't make enough insulin, then so the analogy went, women who were postmenopausal were hormonally deficient because their bodies were no longer making as much estrogen as they were when they were in their 20s. And so physicians reasoned women should just continue taking estrogen for the rest of their lives. And this argument was also made in parallel and in a very different way, and I've written articles about this as well, the same argument has been made for men and testosterone. 
So, um, so uh, estrogen and, and Premarin in particular sort of became the drug of choice for staving off the, uh, what were seen to be the effects postmenopausal effects of not having enough estrogen. Now, you know, the, the studies then proved these not to be true, but it really took off. Um, and what I think is interesting is that in the 1970s, um, estrogen was first um, shown conclusively to cause endometrial cancer. So women who had been taking estrogen had much higher rates of endometrial cancer. And this, um, this came out in 1975. And this is just about the time when the women's health movement was really taking off and trying to offer alternative views of ways of thinking about women's health that were not medicalized. And so there was a real tension between um, this medicalized view, meaning, and when I say medicalized, it's thinking of it as a pathology with and taking some kind of pharmaceutical drug as treatment, and a more um, non-medical, um, a feminist view, which is more holistic, which thinks about, you know, women's emotional, social, and spiritual well-being in addition to physical well-being and, and non pharmaceutical ways of ad- addressing um, all of those issues. And these were in tension um, for about a decade. What's interesting to me is that in the 80s and 90s, as, um, as the association, the positive association between estrogen and the prevention of bone loss came into being, um, the, the medical model kind of won out. And what I think the medical profession was very successful in doing was sort of taking the, the spirit, um, if not the letter, of, of feminist health activism and talking about women, uh, um, encouraging women to be active participants in their health care and not just passive recipients of advice from their, doc, from their paternalistic doctors. This is all very good, but what the medical profession and the pharmaceutical industry did was kind of twisted that. And what they meant by being an active participant was mean actively engage, not only in doing all the right things like having a good diet and exercise, but also in making sure that you take the latest drugs that are available to you. And so that really accelerated this medicalization, again, not just of menopause, but of the rest of a woman's life. Um, this and this, as I said, accelerated through into the 1990s with studies that suggested that estrogen, um, when taken with progesterone, might have a cardioprotective effect. So as I said, in, in 1992, um, uh, one of the recommendations from the American College of Physicians was that every woman over the age of 50 should be taking long-term estrogen replacement therapy or hormone replacement therapy. When the women's health, and, and, and that was sort of an acknowledgement that that women were always sort of in a pre-disease state and so that they needed to take these drugs to stave off disease. Um, One of the many good things to come out of the Women's Health Initiative is a reframing of how the medical profession talks about menopause. And there was a conscious effort no longer to to describe it as, um, you know, a potentially uh, hormone deficient state, but instead as the way you started talking about it as a passage as just, you know, one stage in a very long life. And I, I hope that that's the way we, we've been thinking about now over the last 15 years. As you pointed out, I've sort of moved away from this research, although obviously being a woman experienced it myself personally, but my sense is that it hasn't been um, as fraught as it was for our older sisters um, in previous decades. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree, but we still have so far to go. Um, you know, to really be able to uh, 
provide women with the highest level um, of research and science as it relates to women's health. You know, I was there when Bernadine Healy came on board as the first uh, um, head of the National Institutes of Health, who was a woman and still to this day the only one. And one of the first things she said is not a nickel, not a dime to any research that does not include a woman if it's appropriate. Um, and whereas before we were doing, we were really extrapolating from male data to female, anyone who uh, has a little common sense knows how far that's gonna get you, nowhere. Um, because as it turns out, we're very different in many respects, especially uh, when, when we look at how we metabolize drugs, for instance, um, the big fiascos with the hypertensive drugs, et cetera. Um, and so when she came on board, she put women front and center. And then when she announced the Women's Health Initiative and appointed my wonderful friend, uh, Dr. Vivian Pinn, to head this thing, which she did for many years, um, that was, uh, we all basically celebrated finally some data on women. I'm a clinical researcher, NIH trained, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to tear my hair out when someone tells me to extrapolate data, which I refuse to do. I want to see original data. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And when I think, again, taking the long view, when I think about the um, women's health movement and the women's movement in general from the second wave of feminism in the 1960s, what those women did for us is so amazing. And one of the specific things I think we can point to is that they opened up the doors of science and medicine so that women like yourselves could get trained and could become part of the profession. So when, you know, when I was talking about gynecologists in the 1960s and into the 1970s, 95% of them were men and 95% of the people doing research were men. And you're absolutely right. Most, most medical research studies focused only on men. By opening up the doors and removing quotas from medical schools and from, you know, PhDs in, in science, we, and, and even and including women as legislators, by having women in these positions of power, we've been able to change how research is done. And so what counts as good research? And what counts as good research, of course, is including people of all genders. It also includes people of all ethnicities. And I think it's because women have been at the table that we've been able to make those changes. And so that's one of the very positive things to come out of the women's movement and directly affect women's health. But it took a long time because women who finally got into medical school and graduate school in the 1970s had to go through many, many years of training and to get to the positions of authority where you now find yourselves. Yep, that's us. <laughs> and uh, no question. But you also are uh, uh, a scientist interested in culture. So there's another layer of culture here, and that is the youth-oriented culture. And, and what was its effect on this whole issue of, you know, providing women with, um, as it were, their fountain of youth? Yes, let me correct you. I'm not a scientist. I want to be very clear about that. Yes, I didn't get my undergraduate degree 150 years ago in biology, but but I'm really trained and have worked for my whole career as a historian of science. And 
uh, and you're right, I'm very interested in science as a social activity and science in society. And I believe that we can't just look at the research in a vacuum. People do the research in a vacuum. People don't do the research in a vacuum. People live their lives in society. And one of the things that but one of the really important factors in affecting not only how physicians thought about women, but also how the media portrayed women, and then how women thought about themselves were these um, social constructions and expectations of women in aging. Uh, and, uh, and that's very much bound up with our society's obsession with youth, which starts in the 1920s because of movie culture and magazines. We see an increase in the glorification of youth, and, if you could, and the, along with the glorification of youth comes a devaluing of age and all of the wonderful things that do come along with age, one of them being wisdom. But that was all devalued, and and. Uh, the way and appearance became very important as well. So all of the way that women were thinking about aging, the way they were taught to think about it, was very bound up in their appearance and their relationship with men. And so we really can't tease that apart from how important um, this drug seemed to women. It's it easy to look back, perhaps, and say, oh, we can't believe that, you know, that they took these drugs. But at the time, it seemed like a really positive thing to do to make a, a positive impact in their lives by making them look better and then therefore feel better. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting, this stage of a woman's life, um, as she's going through the natural transition of perimenopause, menopause, and post, also bumps up against ageism um, and that whole youth culture. And, you know, and also fear-driven, oh my God, a wrinkle. <laughs> and and so now what am I going to do? I am broken. I need to be fixed. That's the way so many women have typified it to me. You know, since when am I broken um, just because I'm having hot flashes, some rotten sleep, um, and some night sweats? I mean, yeah, I can get through stuff. Hey, listen, I got through PMS. I can get through this. You know, this is what I hear from a lot of women who are really, you know, leaning much more toward uh, healthy lifestyle habits and really working that well to lay down a foundation. You know, uh, I, I just think that uh, this this whole issue of you're broken, this needs to be fixed, um, was a consequence of this whole um, estrogen deficiency uh, narrative. Um, wow, I'm deficient. Something's wrong. I'm fearful now. I am broken. I need to be fixed. Ergo, write me the script. Does that make sense? That's right. Very much so. That's exactly, and that's the whole nature of a deficiency disease where medicine can leap in to rescue women with this prescription. And everybody feels like they've had a positive, that the, the, the doctor-patient encounter in the office has had a positive outcome. I've written you this prescription. You can take this drug. Um, I'm telling you, you're going to feel better. And, and so often women sort of took that up and thought, mm, maybe I really will feel better. I, you, you bring up a really interesting point, too, which is about um, uh, the... Um, the way that we idolize uh, youth and sort of expect that, you know, 25 
is sort of the apogee of, of health and beauty. And that's culturally constructed. There's nothing that says that, that that's only, you know, sort of culture deciding that that's where we think people sort of are most fit and in their best shape. Um, and I really like the way you put it of, of not thinking that someone is broken, but understanding that we all have ups and downs throughout our life and that this too shall pass. We move on to a different stage. Um, but I think we would do well socially to think about all of the gifts that older women provide to society in the work that we do, um, you know, not just the, wor- the work in the economy, but the work in our families and, and, and the wisdom that we impart and the care that we provide. Um, there's, there's an entirely different way to construct the value of aging, and that, which has happened in other societies and other time periods. But for America in the late 20th and 21st century, it was all about being young and pretty. Oh, my God, there's no question. I'm also on my team as a cultural anthropologist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And um, I have I have learned so much. The grand majority of societies out there don't make this a big deal. They're like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you move on. You know, get it moving, girlfriend. Uh, keep moving on with your life. Uh, some societies don't even have a word for menopause because they don't get it. It's sort of like, well... You know, um, your menstrual cycle's ended. Um, Now what, right? Um, They don't turn it into a thing that needs to be fixed. And for that matter, I believe it's in the in the Thai uh, culture, there's actually a phrase, don't even have me say it, because I'll butcher it horribly, um, that in translation says, oh, happy times, no more periods. And it's just like this happy time, let's all have a party. Um, and then they move on with life. So they have uh, constructed a, a very positive um, uh, narrative for themselves that works well. Um, Japanese don't have anything for it. Um, and they have a whole different dynamic over there, uh, given their soy base, um, uh, nutrition, etc. So, you know, it's when we come to our country, it, it's just, you know, it's a pharmaceutical kind of gig. And when I say that, I'm not being negative about pharmaceutical by any means. What I'm simply saying is it's got to be used appropriately, you know, within um, the constructs of a narrative that makes sense and honors, you know, this transition in a woman's life instead of making her feel like something's broken, fix it, and make her feel so fearful that she'll, you know, grab the first prescription to give her. And instead kind of coming back and saying, for instance, today, let's flash forward from when you wrote the book. So today, um, many of the more, you know, au courant um, OBGYNs um, and family practitioners now refer to um, the uh, hormone um, uh, prescriptions as MHT, that's menopausal hormonal uh, therapy, which is really interesting. Um, and they're not saying um, replacement anymore. Um, they're really saying therapy. And now it's more of an individualized situation where you have very low dose um, menopausal um, uh, hormonal therapy, uh, which women you know are feeling more comfortable about. But even to that end, get this, I thought you'd love this. 
To this day, at least 65% of women will not touch hormones because of what happened with the Women's Health Initiative. That's remarkable. It's, in, it's a remarkable testament to science. Um, you know, the early advocates for women's health in the 1970s really wanted to change the culture of what we were just talking about in terms of, of thinking differently about women, uh, women in society and, and aging for both men and women. What's fascinating to me is that what ultimately won the argument against taking a pharmaceutical for the rest of one's life was the scientific evidence. So, um, whereas, you know, those, the early women's health activists had been very suspicious of the pharmaceutical companies and the scientists and the physicians who had developed and promoted estrogen. In the end, they too were, um, they came, they used science effectively in the argument against medicating for the rest of one's life. And I really like your point. That was, I had forgotten that phrase, menopausal hormone therapy. It's so much more accurate in describing that it's a specific treatment for a specific pro, uh, symptom that is temporary as opposed to uh, this notion of if you are deficient, you're going to be deficient for the rest of your life. Very, very different understanding and much more nuanced. And as you said, um, individual, I'm delighted to hear that physicians, women's health physicians are working with their patients on, on a tiered approach to menopausal symptoms. What can you manage with diet, with exercise, with layered clothing, all of these things that women have known about for ever probably, uh, before resorting to a pharmaceutical solution. So it's a great thing that uh, physicians are certainly having a, a wake-up call. Um, unfortunately, a minority of them are still certified in menopause. And that means that the North American Menopause Society basically has the certification course, and women um, and men are now coursing through it as providers to become more highly um, enlightened about the actual new algorithms that are being utilized uh, to be able to manage women in menopause and perimenopause. So that's a good thing, but change happens slowly. At least it seems to be a forward direction. As you're looking at all of this right now as we're closing up, any thoughts, any concluding thoughts on when you close that book and now you're looking forward with all that has happened in women's health care, what just comes to mind immediately? What comes to mind immediately is concern for our daughters and granddaughters um, in their reproductive years. I am just so disappointed by the Dobbs decision. Uh, I've also spent a large part of my career writing not only about oral contraceptives, but I've written about a variety of different contraceptives. My most recent work has been on the comeback of the IUD, um, how the implant has been used, and developments in uh, the provision and access to birth control. And actually, before I started this job as provost, I was starting a book on the history of birth control in United States broadly from 1960 up to the present to do sort of a, a large, a large scale kind of synthetic overview of, of, of what has happened and where we are now. And when I started thinking about that a few years ago, I just would never have been able to fathom that abortion would be outlawed. So 
Unfortunately, I feel like we have taken many, many steps backward. And for not just women's health advocates, but for human rights advocates, this is where we have to put our attention. We have got to turn this around and make this very basic health care need available to all women. Ah, you know, very, very powerful words, no question about it. Um, And I also think, do you, one last thing, um, you speak to the issue of feminists um, throughout your book. Where are they today? I hope that we're all feminists. That may be, that may be aspirational, but I really think that what the, what feminists did, and particularly women's health activists did, was they changed the the language around health care to think about patients as active participants and not just as sort of passive recipients of health care. And I think that's really important. A large part of the estrogen elixir looks at information flows and how people outside the scientific and medical communities get their information about science and medicine. And I think the more that we can do to promote those conversations so that lay people can be fully uh, informed about their options, uh, the better we will be in terms of where we are with our health care and people feeling like they're invested in the choices they're making. And so to that end, I should thank you for hosting this podcast because this is a really effective way of getting to people, women in particular, and getting them to think more and do a little bit of research about their own health and health care and how they can be active in, in charting their course through their lives. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, You know, a long time ago, there were no podcasts. And when the podcast showed up, what we got were mostly the bro podcast, you know, the guys doing their thing. And then it was time to hear our voices. And I think that what really sticks with women um, in a big way are credible women who they can trust, who have the appropriate education and knowledge and expertise, and, and can also share that. Um, in a uh, format where they can um, say, okay, I understand what she just said, and I'm going to do a little homework on my own right now, but I'm, um, I find that compelling and provocative. And so, if anything, we ask a lot of questions. Um, we may not have all the answers, but we're honest and transparent about that. And there it is. And what we do is, uh, myself as a clinical scientist, I, I just push for more and more and more research, um, more data bites that will help us fully understand um, a woman's journey, uh, to say the least. Well, what I can tell you is thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the Herb Podcast. Everyone, we've been talking to Dr. Elizabeth Watkins. And um, I I just can't begin to tell you um, how grateful I am that you uh, have taken your knowledge as a historian of science um, and have helped us as women um, understand our own journey so much better. Um, If you want to learn more about her, you can just Google her, Dr. Elizabeth Siegel Watkins at the University of California, Riverside. Of course, I have warm thoughts because I'm from the University of California at Berkeley. Um, and so uh, all I can say is that uh, we're at least kindred spirits here. Dr. Watkins, thank you for being on the Her Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And everyone out there, please take a minute to hit iTunes and rate and review the show because I would love to hear from you about this 
wonderful episode. I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Her Podcast. Please follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Her Podcast on iTunes, Radio MD, and all of the major platforms. So thanks for listening today. Please stay safe and stay well.